Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, let's have a word of prayer together. Dear Lord, we thank you again uh, for the good fellowship that we've had, the joy in the Lord that we share. We pray now that your spirit uh, would again enlighten and illumine us to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a good friend, and she went to the doctor very ill. And the doctor gave her a shot to cure her. And the shot almost killed her. You know, they say in medicine that diagnosing the problem is sometimes uh, half of the solution. If we can get the problem right, then the solution is so much easier. Um, and sometimes, though, the cure that we suggest can be worse than the disease, so we have to be careful. Uh, when we talk about diagnosing problems, let me ask you how you would diagnose these problems. I'm going to read some example situations here. Example number one is Lisa's husband shows no evidence of being a Christian. Mark told her that when he was young, he went forward to church and he was baptized and even thought that he was called to preach once. Mark got older, he taught a Sunday school class, but now he has absolutely no interest in church or spiritual things. Lisa's really irritated that Mark still considers himself a Christian when he has no interest in spiritual things. She doesn't know whether he's saved or not. How would you diagnose that? How about this example, number two? Jessica, Rob and Donna's 16-year-old daughter, has found some discipline problems, have had some discipline problems at school and home. They knew that part of her problem was a set of bad friends who drank and used drugs. Rob and Donna tried to convince her to go to a church retreat, um, and she did. And there Jessica raised her hand in response to a gospel invitation and talked with the pastor that evening. And Rob and Donna were so happy because it seemed their prayers had been answered. Jessica even got involved with the youth group and went on a summer mission trip to Mexico. All this lasted less than a year. Jessica began to see her old friends again and later had to enter rehab for heroin addiction. Rob and Donna were so sure she had been saved, but now they're just confused. How would you diagnose that situation about Jessica? And then this last example. Jim tells his supposedly Christian neighbors, Craig and Carla, that he is not a Christian. They brought him to church once and told him afterward that he needed to become a Christian by believing in Jesus Christ. But after looking at their lives, he's concluded he has nothing to gain, in this world anyway. He watches Craig and Carla take their kids to church for a couple times a month, but rarely do they stay with them. He knows that Craig cheated on Carla last year and that she cheats on her boss by padding her expense account. Craig seems to love football and beer more than his wife and children, and the shouting matches at home all but prove it. The only difference Jim sees between his life and their lives is he has more time to go fishing on Sundays than they do. How would you diagnose that situation? These are all situations I made up, hypothetical, but very real, aren't they? You all know someone like that, and I often get the question, what do we do about old Uncle Joe? He says he's a Christian, he even knows the Bible, but drinks like a fish. Swears like a sailor. What do we do with him? Is he a Christian or not? And what do we do about that situation? Well, we live in a, this is, can be applied across cultures in different ways. I'm thinking more in terms of America when I, when I uh, talk about this situation. But in America, for example, you know, 38% of the people claim to be born again. 
40% claims to go to church regularly. 38% of the people that you know in your neighborhood act like they're born again. Not in my neighborhood, not 38%. And I live in the Bible Belt. So I wonder about those statistics. I wonder about the questions that were asked and how clear they were, by the way. I live in uh, Barossa, Texas. We call it uh, that area, the buckle of the Bible Belt. We have um, in Fort Worth, Texas, just a few miles up the road, the largest seminary in the world, Protestant seminary in the world, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southern Baptist uh, Seminary. So, you know, we're surrounded by, by Baptists. They call themselves down there, Baptists. And uh, so uh, I love my Baptist friend, but since there's so many of them, I like to make fun of them, you know. And uh, they, they, they plant churches in our, in our neighborhood, just three or four blocks down the street from another church. And in Burleson, there's about 20 Baptist churches. Um, and there's, there's this everywhere. And a typical church might, you know, a lot of the churches will have like a attendance of 100, but on their attendance rolls will be like 400 people that just never come anymore, whatever reason. In fact, they did a survey in Texas one time, and they found out in Texas there are more Baptists than there are people. <laughs> it seems like it when you do the math. So we have people who call themselves Christians, but they're not really living like it. They're not being consistent in in any kind of godliness, and they don't seem to have victory. They don't, don't seem to have joy. What do we do with this? Are they false Christians or faulty Christians? And uh, what are we to think about them, and how should we deal with them? Um, I think that it is very true, as John has pointed out, that Christians often have little difference from the world. Uh, someone has said that there's, there's too much of the world in Christians and not enough Christians in the world. And there's little difference in in the studies that have been done, in the morality even of Christians, and the behavior of teenagers, um, and their attitudes towards sex than that of the world. And the divorce rate pretty much mirrors the world, maybe just a little bit better. How many of these people really love God? Uh, how many that call themselves Christians are really actively involved in, um, in studying their Bible or witnessing for the Lord? Well, the problem that we have in American culture and probably everywhere in the world is not a unique problem to our day and age or our culture. It's a problem that Jesus had in his day as well. And I think that the one parable touches on it in Luke chapter 8. It's called there the uh, parable of the sower. Some of them more accurately probably call it the parable of the soils because it talks about four different kinds of soils upon which the seed falls when the sower sows. It shows that there are different groups and they have different experiences. Um, and we'll see whether they are false or just faulty. Uh, let's go through it together, make a few comments. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a multitude and in verse 5 of chapter 8, he says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and it, as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, yielded a crop a hundredfold. Now, we have four different kinds of soils here. We have one where obviously nothing happened. On the other extreme, we have the fourth where obviously very good things happened. We have two in the middle that are questionable. What happened might be the question. False or faulty? And if these represent people, which they do, 
then what are we to think about this, these two groups? Well, Jesus helps us because he gives us an interpretation of the parable. First, he explains the purpose of parable, parables to the disciples when they asked him. In verse 10, he says, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but the rest it has given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Parables give light to those that want it and keep light from those that don't want it. That's why Jesus used parables. And we always have to be careful in interpreting parables because Jesus is usually driving home one main point. And parables aren't intended to walk on all fours. And we shouldn't probably look for significance in every single detail. Um, because when we do that, we're probably missing the main point, which is what Jesus really wanted to make. But Jesus helps us kind of see his main point with his interpretation. And so this is what the parable means, he says. In verse 11, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So it is all, what kind of seed? Good seed, right? Yeah, it's all good seed because it's the word of God. No question there about the truth. In verse 12, those by the wayside are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should, what? Believe. And be what? Saved. Now, I could argue and, and go on and show how through in John and in so many other places that the consequence of belief or the result of belief is always saved. You believe and you get saved. That's what Jesus is assuming here. If they believed the word, they would have been saved. And uh, Luke is, by the way, the only one in the uh, account of this parable to use the term believe. But he makes it very clear that these people did not believe and therefore they are not saved. That's very clear to us. And then in verse 13, but there are the ones on the rock, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Now, Jesus does say that they receive the word with joy. To receive is sometimes used as a synonym for believe. In fact, he does use the word believe here. They believe for a while, <clears throat> but they fall away. Okay, so what do we do with this group of people? Um, Jesus says, though, that they believe. And um, there, are, there are those who would call them, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not kidding here, but there are serious Bible commentators who call them unbelieving believers. Or uh, Christians who are not born again. <laughs> uh, I don't understand what they mean by that, really, because Jesus doesn't have such categories. He just says they believe but the problem happened, they fell away. It was time of temptation. Maybe you who have worked in Muslim countries can tell us stories about people like that who have come to believe, but because of intense persecution have fallen away. It, the heat can either make you go one direction or the other. Sometimes it strengthens you and sometimes it causes you to collapse. I think personally that Jesus is speaking of, they, of those who genuinely believe, <clears throat> but because of uh, the problems and trials they were facing, um, Faded, faded out. In verse 14, the ones who fell among the thorns are those when they heard, they go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures, pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Here he's assuming that they sprang up into life, which is a result of believing. Uh, there is life, but that life is choked out by the pleasures of the world. Now, is that a possibility for someone to believe and be choked out? in their fruitfulness by the pleasures of the world. Well, absolutely. Um, Paul wrote at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me and gone after uh, the pleasures of the present world. Something like that, in my paraphrase. 
And um, because of that, they bring no fruit to maturity. There's some fruit there that, uh, but really they could have done so much more. Green tomatoes, not red tomatoes. I love fried green tomatoes. You ever try them? Good southern dish. And so we ask the question, are they believers or not believers? There are those who would like to categorize numbers two and three, the really only controversial ones, and say, well, they're not really believers. They never really were believers, and it proves it by their works. I don't think it's that simple. In fact, I think it's obvious that they had life. When a person believes, they're saved. When a person believes, they're born again. And life is demonstrated, and uh, a person who is born again cannot be unborn. And the whole question revolves a lot around how, how sinful can Christians be, or how far can they stray? And yet we have other passages in Scripture that show us that Christians can stray fairly far. And I talked about this some yesterday, so I won't re-preach that. But think of the example of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They're observing the Lord's Supper, but they're doing it in a wrong way. Paul says you're doing it uh, in a wrong, selfish way. You're not sharing with the others. You're not waiting for the others who don't have food. And uh, you need to examine yourself. Judge yourself lest you, lest you be judged and, and make sure that you're doing it in the right way. And as a result of that, he says, some of you have become ill and some of you have fallen asleep or died. But these Corinthians had strayed away in, in the practice of the Lord's Supper and it seems that their hearts had grown so cold and hard that the Lord took them and made the mill or took their lives, something that we call the sin unto death. A sin unto death is mentioned in First uh, John 5 as well. There is a sin unto death. John says. In James chapter 5, if you see a brother who has um, uh, wandered into sin, turn such a one. Bring him back. And you saved him from death. I think it could very well be physical death there. So there are Christians who do have problems with sin. Christians who do stray quite far, even to the point of death. And uh, we can't ignore that fact. And that, that's why the the New Testament, frankly, has so many exhortations not to sin. It wouldn't make much sense if we automatically would not sin. If we were all Christians who bore fruit, so that no one had any question about our lives, and there wouldn't be the exhortations in the New Testament, would there? Well, we've given some symptoms of the problem. People who claim to be Christians who aren't, we've, we need to look at some of the diagnostic options. What do we do with the people today, like these three examples? How are we to consider them? and diagnose the problem. Well, there's one diagnosis we could, we could consider, and that's that they just lost their salvation. They showed some evidence, and um, they were Christians, they genuinely believed, and they lost their salvation. Now, frankly, and I probably don't need to pound this point home with you, but uh, I reject that outright because of the teaching of the Scripture and the, of the security of the believer, and, uh, and that when a person believes in Jesus Christ, they receive eternal life not interrupted life. If it's not eternal life, then we need to call it something else. And when a person is born again, they can't be unborn. And I could go on and on and on with scripture passages, John 10, Romans 8, and so forth. So I won't dwell long on that, but they, so they didn't lose their salvation. <clears throat> now, there's another way we could diagnose that, and that's that they were never really saved. They made a profession of faith, and, um, and they really weren't saved to begin with. Maybe they didn't understand the gospel. Maybe they were pressured into it by their peers, like teenagers or 
uh, it was a cultural thing in a village <clears throat> or something like that. They made a decision based on false information or an emotional impulse. And often we don't understand the things that make people do what they do and respond as they do. We went to Africa, you know, this summer I took a group from my church of, of 13 others, and, and they went door to door, and at the end of the week, uh, the end of the two weeks, um, the Africans had been keeping tabulations all week, and, and they announced that uh, we've, the team led 324 people to Christ, <laughs> and our teenagers got all excited. In fact, they were a little surprised because <laughs> they didn't think that that exactly had happened, and uh, we had to have a little discussion about that, you know, that that there was so much lost in the translation because sometimes we would use a translator and that there was all the cultural pressures just to please us or because, the, you know, one of the group did and so many things that we don't understand. And we're sure, uh, thank the Lord, there was some fruit from that trip. We saw some people who seemed to be very genuine, very interested, had a lot of questions and seemed to be genuinely converted. Uh, but we are under no illusion that 324 people came to know the Lord from their efforts. We were wondering if that, that we even talked to that many people. <laughs> so perhaps they were never saved at all, and, and they think they're Christians just because they're born in America or because they go to a certain church or because they were confirmed or baptized in that church. Now another way, we, and that would, that would be number one, this is the person who the devil comes, snatches the seed away before the person really grasps this understands it, before it takes root in their life, mm -hmm. and that person never believes. Now, another option might be that uh, these people are immature. That they were born into the family of God, but they never really grew up or they're growing so slowly that people just can't see any change. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul does talk to the Corinthians uh, and call them babes in Christ. And the other word he uses for them is carnal or fleshly. You know, there's not much more that you get out of uh, a little baby than, <clears throat> than the, uh, the physical manifestations on both ends. I mean, there's not much more a baby does. A baby can't connect with you emotionally and spiritually, just physically. It's all physical in that early stage of life. And perhaps that's why Paul chooses to use that word carnal, associations with the physical body, but also with the flesh, the sinfulness of the flesh that was being demonstrated in these Corinthians. He says, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So there is a problem with carnal Christians in the church. <clears throat> Those who never grow up. Why don't they grow up for one reason or another? We don't really know. It could be that that they're saved and there's nobody there to help them, nobody there to show them. Maybe they don't, know, they don't have the tools. Um, I've seen this in situations you probably have as well. We have to grant the, the reality of life that all babies take some time to grow up. And we sometimes are delighted to see change overnight, but we don't always see change overnight. And so, you know, when is a baby not a baby? Well, according to the airlines, it's two years old, and you've got to pay full price for a ticket. But they have motives, right? There's motives behind all that. But when is a baby not a baby? Um, unfortunately, there's some adult Christians walking around in spiritual diapers, and that's not a pleasant sight. I'm still sucking on a bottle when they should be eating a big, juicy steak. 
And Paul says, boy, I'd like to give you a big steak, he says in Hebrews, you know. I'd like to feed you the meat of the word. And, when after, and he says this right before he talks about Melchizedek, and I'm thinking, my goodness, what, what in the world did he have in mind? Because I can barely grasp his truths about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. So what would his steak dinner be like? So it's possible they could be immature. And in that state of immaturity, like these, these two uh, examples in the middle of Jesus' parable, uh, they're either they're choked out because they just didn't have a chance to get their roots down. They dried up in temptation or they easily got distracted by the things of the world. And then there's another possibility. We could diagnose the problem as uh, in Jesus' parable and in our examples that I started with, that they're backsliders. They, they believe, they grew to a certain point, and then there was a point where, I used to use backslide as a term that's pretty common to people. They fell back into sin. They're morally derailed. Can this happen to Christians? Well, absolutely. That's why Jesus had to give us Matthew chapter 18 a process of church discipline to try to restore people who are spiritually disrailed. That's why he says in Galatians 6.1 that you who are spiritual, you know, restore such a one when you see a brother overtaken in sin. That's why he says in Galatians 1, you know, the Galatians are so soon turned away from the true gospel. I mean, we can easily get doctrinally derailed. We can easily get morally derailed. And so that seems to be what happened in verse 14. Here's a guy who starts well, and uh, it seems he bears fruit, but not to maturity. The fruit is just underripe. And so fruit that's underripe is usually just thrown out. It's not useful. And then there's another uh, diagnostic option, and that would be that these are struggling Christians. Christians who come into the family of God, but they're struggling with things like addiction. Or the, the spiritual abscesses that something like childhood abuse can cause. I mean, I've seen Christians start well, and, and then they get in, and, and then um, there's something about childhood abuse that doesn't really seem to emerge, they find, until about the age in the 30s or something. And then people start having to deal with it. And I've just seen people almost collapse when they start thinking about what happened to them as children. Or when they deal with a, a habit or some sin that they had been given into, uh, they just didn't have victory in those areas. Now they become a Christian, and they may have victory in those areas, but there's still a struggle. It's wrestling every day. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 7 described a fierce fight that he had within himself. He knew what was the right thing to do, but he'd always do the wrong thing. And there are those who would say, well, that was Paul as a non-Christian. That doesn't make sense to me. That interpretation. I think Paul knew very well the realities of sin and the Christian because, you see, we're saved and we get a new nature, but we still have our old hormones. We still have enough of the old person there. And so we have this struggle going on within, and Paul says, who can deliver me from this? Well, Jesus Christ is the answer. Somebody has to come alongside and teach us about Christ and build us up in him. So those are some of the options, and um, these options could explain our examples that we started with, could match the parable that Jesus gave. But you know, really, <clears throat> each individual probably has to be diagnosed as an individual. We really can't always know exactly where a person stands, as much as we would like to. We're not omniscient.
we are not God. Now, how do we deal with false Christians and faulty Christians? False Christians or faulty Christians, then? This is where it kind of comes together with the gospel question and our discussion of lordship salvation, because there's really two different approaches. And both camps are trying to solve the same problem, I think. In fact, one leading lordship teacher says, um, he said, I, I grew up, I uh, went through seminary with this guy. He was one of my best friends. We ministered together. We preached together. And then he went off to get a, a, another degree and, and a secular university, and he, and he just fell away from the faith, and now he just claims to be an atheist. And this teacher says, I had no category for such a person. And so the lordship side of the of the theology has a way of dealing with these kind of people. Let me tell you what that is. Um, I think their motives could be right, but here's what they will will do. <clears throat> they will front front load the gospel. You see, make it more costly. Make people make a commitment. Surrender themselves. Take up your cross. Deny yourselves. They say those are all conditions of salvation. And it, and then if that person does that, then they'll be almost guaranteed to carry through. And if they don't do that, and later on they show that they're not really committed, then they'll say, well, they never really believed. It's obvious. They never really made the commitment. So they front load the gospel with this commitment. But later on, when the commitment isn't matched, they say, well, never really believed. Not really a Christian. Another thing they, they do, though, some would not front load the gospel so much as back load the gospel. And it goes like this. Well, let's see if that person perseveres in the faith. Let's see if that person sticks with it. With the obvious implication, we really won't know until the end, and I talked about that a little bit. There's a doctrine that uh, some have accepted called the doctrine of perseverance. And I think the doctrine of perseverance has a lot of holes in it, as I've thought that through. I like to talk about the doctrine of preservation. God preserves us when we don't per persevere. Thank God. For we are faithless, yet he is faithful. So they, they want to backload the gospel. So let's watch the person's work. So if they die in faith, then we'll know that they are saved, if they persevere to the end. <clears throat> but somebody that dies of suicide or somebody that has a sin unto death, they wouldn't be saved because they didn't persevere. The Corinthians who died at the Lord's Supper wouldn't be saved because they didn't persevere. Both views, front-loading the gospel and back-loading the gospel, of course, rob a person of any assurance. Front-loading the gospel, you, you have to ask yourself, did I really commit myself because I'm still struggling with sin? And back-loading the gospel, you say, well, I really don't know if I'm saved because I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Will I stick with Christ if my circumstances change? Kind of like getting a car. You know, you can buy it up front and pay cash for the whole thing. Or you can make payments along the way and it's not really yours till the end. Well, there is another option. And that's that it could be given to you as a free gift. No payment at all. Now, see, that's the option that, that, that grace has for us. We don't raise the cost of salvation. We raise the cross of salvation and tell people that it's all been paid for. And here's how I think those who believe in grace can deal with those that are worldly Christians, faulty Christians, or we're just not sure about. First of all, we need to be sure that we make the gospel clear. 
both as this is what we've been saying, isn't it, all weekend? Both in its content and in its condition. The content we usually get right, the condition is where we usually muddle things up. Make sure that the gospel is clear. That would cure perhaps those um, in Jesus' parable who fell away for one reason or another. They didn't understand the implications of grace. They weren't grounded in the grace and the free gift of God. I have found that um, when you're dealing with someone and you're not really sure about where they stand, they call themselves a Christian, they've been baptized, they go to church, maybe they live a moral life, and you're, but you're still wondering. I found two questions to be very helpful, and I know that most of you have heard these questions. <clears throat> the second question is more important than the first. first was more of an introductory question. Do you know for, that if you were to die today that you'd go for, to heaven? Do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven? The person either says yes or no. It doesn't really matter to me. No, of course, then you say, well, would you like to know for sure? The second question is the really important one. If you were to stand before God and God said, Jim, why shall I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And the answer to that question will tell me what that person is trusting in. And so that becomes a very important question. And this is where people really tip their hand as to what they're trusting in to get to heaven. And so many will say, well, I've done the best I can. Well, wait a minute, you said you're sure to get to heaven. Are you sure that you've done the best you could? You see, then you have an opportunity to go in there and explain to them the, the gospel of grace as opposed to works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and things like that. Make the gospel clear to these people. You may find that some of them never really were saved, which I think is the situation in many who claim to be Christians. Secondly, don't pressure people. We're, we're so prone to gravitate towards gimmicks and uh, clever things, arguments, peer pressure. Uh, but we don't pressure, think, pressure people into believing in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you know, Paul said that when he came to the Corinthians, he was, his credibility was being attacked, and uh, there were these super apostles who had moved in, very eloquent fellows, great orators, and and here was the Apostle Paul said, no, I'm not one of those super apostles. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, Brethren, I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's saying, I wasn't trying to be clever and use clever arguments to talk you into being a Christian. I was just preaching the simple gospel of Christ. He says in chapter 1, I preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us are being saved, the wisdom of God. So don't pressure people into being saved. Children, when we talk to them, you know, this is how, this is how they are when you're giving that invitation. They're looking at their friend, you know. Teenagers, the same way. Uh, the greatest fear in a teenager's life is not to be cool. I haven't quite figured out what cool is. I read a Time Magazine article last month, and it was about what is cool. And, and the thing about being cool is it always changes. You see, cool is, cool is cool until a certain number of people catch up to it, and then something else is cool. And to be cool is 
to be kind of in the majority that's at that leading edge. So it's like a chasing a butterfly. You can never really catch it and if you think about it. So you're cool one day and not cool the next day. But teenagers are all wrapped up in this being cool thing. I think it's more important to be Christ-like than cool. But uh, the peer pressure, maybe somebody to be cool would become a Christian or claim to be a Christian. I always say if we can talk somebody into being a Christian, somebody else can talk them out of it. And there's a story about evangelist D.L. Moody back in the 1800s, and he was walking down the street with one of his critics from the newspaper after one of his crusades. As they walked down the street, uh, they came across this, across this very inebriated man sitting on the side of the road. And the man looked up and said, D.L. Moody, good to meet you. I came to know Christ back in your crusade last year. And this critical newspaper reporter said, See, Moody, there's one of your converts. And Moody said, Well, he must be one of mine because he's not one of the Lord's. Now, how many people do we have who go forward in crusades and are converts of the, the emotion, of the moment, of the friend, the peer pressure, of an unclear message, but not convert to the Lord? How many of those who go forward in the Billy Graham crusade are truly saved? You, know you want to know what Billy Graham says? 3%. They've done, the, they've done the studies. So something else is happening, but the tragedy is that many people think they're Christians and they're not. Now we can also do something else, just face the reality of sin. I think we need to have a very realistic view of sin. I've talked about that, and I won't belabor that point. But the Bible teaches, that, that's why Romans 6, 7, and 8 is written, because sin is so real and powerful, and we need to have a proper understanding of our position and our new identity and the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within us. And then we need to teach people that who are struggling with sin. And then I would say we need to amaze them with grace. Teach them what God has done. That's why Paul says, you know, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because he's done all th these things, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a lot of people who are just kind of coasting through life, calling themselves Christians, maybe Christians, but they're not motivated to study the Bible. They're not motivated to go out and witness. They're not motivated to get involved in Christian service. Why? Maybe they just don't understand all that God has done for them. There may always be those who will be ungrateful enough to live a selfish life in view of the fact that God has done everything for them, but I think that more that people understand what God has done for them, the more they will begin to respond and open up to grace. Remember that Paul saves those discussions about what to do to the end of the book of Romans after he tells them for six chapters who they are. Maybe we need to spend more time telling people and reminding them who they are and to live up to who they are. You know, in the book of Ephesians, Paul spends three chapters one, two, and three, talking about God's plan for us and what God has done for us and how he saved us for eternity and he's saved us by his grace and he's seated us with Christ and he's raised us up on high and he's given us a new identity and he's made us broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, all these things. And then in chapter four, he begins by saying, now I want you to live a life worthy of the name by which you're called. You see? He didn't start out saying what to do. He started out saying, this is who you are. Now here's what you're to do. Live up to your name. When my children go out, sometimes I say, remember who you are. And that's what I typed into my cellular phone. You know, when you have that introductory message, when it comes on, I remember who you are. You represent Christ. 
You represent Burleson Bible Church. You represent the Bing family. Remember who you are. And so it's not so important to cover all the do's and don'ts if someone remembers and knows who they are. So amaze them with grace. God has made them a new person, a child of God, a significant person in his program. And then show them grace yourself. Deal graciously with them. Those who claim to be Christians don't act like it. I think it's very important not to be uh, condemn them, chase them away, uh, show that you love them, exhibit and model for them the grace of God. That's what Romans 14 seems to be saying. You have those who differ with you over things. Accept those who are weaker. Don't argue with them about these questionable things. Talk to them about the, the basics. Don't argue with them about how much money to give to the Lord or you know, uh, going to church is important, but that's probably not where I would start even. You know? Let's talk to them about their relationship to the Lord, their heart, the heart issues. Give them room to grow and give them time to grow and pray for them. Show them grace. You know, one of the reasons I'm a Christian, I kind of referred to it a couple times today. One of the reasons I'm a Christian, I think, is because, and this goes back to my testimony, um, I grew up next door to a guy, that guy that we wouldn't let in our nature club named Jerry. And uh, Jerry was a bad kid. He had two alcoholic parents. He, did, he got off to a bad start. And so it wasn't, he, you know, he was drinking probably when he was 10 years old, you know. And uh, then he got into drugs and he got addicted to drugs and he got into heroin and things like that. And, and, uh, and then he got me into drugs and so forth. And um, he, though, uh, always was, I, I was never as bad as him. He went to a rehab program that was a Christian program, and he came back from that rehab program, and he was talking about Jesus and showing me the Bible and all this stuff. And uh, his life was different, and he didn't do drugs. And uh, he, he'd get mad at me when I did. Uh, but this program didn't have a follow-up. They just sent him back to our old neighborhood and with the same old gang. It wasn't long before uh, Jerry started dabbling in, in this stuff again. And on the night that he died, he took a, a, a lot of drugs, and that combined with the case of uh, pneumonia that he had killed him. He died in his sleep that night. And we were out together right until 3 a.m. partying, and then uh, my mother woke me up at 9 in the morning and said, wake up, Jerry's dead. Was he a Christian or not? I'm thoroughly, firmly convinced he was, because I remember what he said. Since then, his brother, who was a drug addict, has become a Christian and is a minister. And his father, who was an alcoholic for 32 years, became a Christian and is in the ministry. But unfortunately, they belong to a denomination that thinks you can lose your salvation, and they won't admit that Jesus, Jerry, was a Christian. And that's kind of sad to me, you know? Because here's the fruit of, of his life, uh, them and me, and, and yet um, they won't admit that. But see, I think this is an example of a sin unto death. Also, where someone persisted in sin and died, and, and God took them away for their own good before they messed up their, their testimony and their reward even further. Was he a Christian? I'm pretty convinced he was. But you know, in the end, only God knows. I think I can know I'm a Christian because I know what I think, and God knows what I think. But frankly, I don't know what you think. I'm sure Paul's a Christian. I'm as sure as a human can be, but I'm only a human. 
And so we have to be careful about judging others because in the end, only God knows. We can be careful in diagnosing the situation, uh, asking the questions, and sometimes you have to take people at their word. And I'm happy to do that. Okay, you claim you're Christian, then let's, let's get going and let's see what Christians need to be and do. So uh, that's how I would approach this whole question of uh, faulty Christ false Christians or faulty Christians. Very common problem in the church. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.